why you want to sell your life short. Playing it safe is just about the most dangerous thing a woman like you could do. I mean, you waited for the right man the first time. Why didn't you wait for the right man again? Because he didn't come. I'm here. You're late. Hello and welcome. Welcome and hello. This is Wait, You Haven't Seen. And it's a show where we talk about movies and specifically we talk about a movie at least one of us has never seen before. I'm your host Travis, aka TV's Travis. This is episode number 177 and it is the start of the fourth annual Cagepalooza where I spend the month of August watching nothing but Nicolas Cage movies for this show. And joining me to talk about 1987's Moonstruck from the Esoterica Cinema Podcast, it's Jason Peters. Jason, how are you? I am doing well, man. I appreciate you having me on board. Glad that uh, glad that we finally got to uh, have a little meet up in person here because uh, uh, I think you know, but your audience probably doesn't know. But uh, there's a show called America's Next Top Podcaster. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know you were on there, and actually, you were kind of the one who your Twitter lobbying got me to be on their most recent uh, season, season four. And from what I understand, you also got like six of the other people that were contestants this season on there. So I'm, like they start, they need to start paying you some kickbacks or something for that. Yeah, one. I know. I'm going to get a hold of Brian and see where my check is because I was responsible for two thirds <laughs> of the Shans that were on, um, or partially responsible. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so yeah, we we've kind of danced around. We've talked about uh, having you on for a little while, and so it's great to finally mm-hmm. get you on here. And uh, and I couldn't think of a man. better time to do it than with. Um, with Nicolas Cage and my my yearly celebration of all things Cage because I do feel like he's kind of a national treasure in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah. And so it's great to look at the different movies that he's done. And we got talking and Moonstruck was the one uh, that we settled on and I had never seen it before and I don't think you had either, correct? Correct, yeah, first time. Okay, so what did you know about it prior to watching it for the show? Very, very little. It's funny because I actually pitched this one to my wife because, like, we do some very strange movies on our on our show. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's my wife is like a little bit more of a traditional movie viewer than I am. So not everything we watch is like something that I know she's going to dig. So every now and then there'll be movies that pop up where it's like, oh, hey, I think you might dig this one. A little more traditional romantic comedy. So I told her I know exactly two things about this movie. Well, three <laughs> things. A, it's a romantic comedy. Yep. Uh, B, Cher won an Oscar for it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And C, there is a line where she looks at a man and slaps him in the face and tells him to snap out of it. Only three (laughs) things I know about Moonstruck. (laughs) Uh, So I knew those three things and that Nicolas Cage was in it. That's it. That's what I knew going into this movie. I suppose I didn't know the fourth one as well. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here right now on Cage of Palooza. That's right. So, okay, first question for you. What do you think of it? You know what? It was it was a surprisingly sweet movie uh, that I, I didn't really again going into it with no expectations. I had known that there was what do you want to call it? I had known that Nick Cage kind of had a unique uh, <laughs> accent that he affected for it. I did hear that, and sure enough, uh, he did. Mm-hmm. And I'm not exactly sure to this day what that accent is. Neither is he. That's the thing about yeah, right. <laughs> that's the thing about him is he has that ability to just sell it you know regardless of what it is he sells the hell out of it 100 percent, and it works yeah. 
But I found the movie really charming. I found it to be exceptionally well-paced. I thought it mm-hmm. moved very well. Uh, there was some very charming actors. Like, you rarely see Danny Aiello playing, like, the sheepish character, right? I'm used yeah. to seeing him as, like, the tough gangster guy. Mm-hmm. Olympia Dukakis is always very lovely to see. She's a very charming actress. And most specifically, the one thing I think that I most responded to in the film is there was a number of very sweet moments. They weren't even really plot points. They were just these little tiny moments Mm -hmm. that involved older characters in like long standing marriages. Right. Yes. And it's so like it's such a trope and it's so beaten to death like the couple that's been married together forever that just argues and hates each other and they're always mm-hmm. yelling. And it did kind of actually give you that up front, but where this movie kind of like gave you and sort of made it a sort of a different flavor at the end is that it always ended on a sweet note. So whether mm-hmm. it was like the first older couple in the convenience store where they're arguing and arguing, and then he looks at her and says something sweet and she's like, Oh, you. And then they have the moment, um, the you know moment where the one character is looking out at the moon And then, you know, he turns back and, you know, him and his wife have a very sort of like amorous little playful moment there. And again, it was just like, let me ask you, are you are you married with kids and all that living the dream? I am not. uh, I'm I'm a single guy. uh, But but I noticed all of those things that you're talking about. And it was actually the thing that really made me appreciate this movie the further along I went in it, because it is a romantic comedy, but. But I, it's hard for me to give it that label because it doesn't feel like a, quote, romantic comedy, like what you would expect to see, especially given the the era of romantic comedies I grew up in in the 90s where I didn't enjoy sure. many of them. This had all these great, like, it's a testament to a good script and a really good director casting these these people. And then, you're, like you said, uh, it, it had the trope of the older couple that uh, that bicker a lot, but it wasn't just that. Like, that wasn't their defining characteristic. Yeah, and I yeah, love. Yeah, it was that. really nice to see. Yeah, I the 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 heart in this movie is what made it something. I know for a fact that younger me wouldn't have appreciated this movie. Totally. Um, and but but watching it now and seeing it for the first time, I was blown away by how much I enjoyed it and just just how much heart there was to it this this like this wonderful gooey center of of like sweet moments uh i think some of my favorites were like you said um the the older man he's standing there looking at the moon and he turns around and just kind of gives his wife this really goofy look when she tells him how he looks (laughs) he looks 25 uh and he just gives her that goofy look and like I'm, i'm watching that i'm like see that's like i want more of that stuff in movies because that's real life like that's that's a couple you don't you don't get married and stay together for 30 or 40 or 50 years and not just be madly in love with each other. Like that trope, that trope of the couple that can't stand each other isn't really real. I've never truthfully witnessed that in my life, like in real life. So to see it in a movie, the way that uh, most of the couples I see, the the liquor store couple um, was another one. That was a great moment because it is, it's that setup of like, they're just bickering back and forth. And then he, he just stops her in her tracks with that whole, you know what I see? The woman I married. And she's like, oh, and, <laughs> and I just love that. It was great. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of little moments like that. And it's, you know, like, so for me, you know, I've been 
married officially for six years, but I've been with my wife for like 16 because we were together forever. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you know, it's kind of one of those things where it is very easy to sort of get caught up in just the day to day and taking care of the kids and the bills and all of that. But there are just these little moments, right? And, and it can often be just no more than that, right? So much, so often in film, especially with the romantic comedies, I think you're talking about like the Kate Hudson and Hugh Grant movies and all those sort of things, right? But yeah. this is much more of like, I would say that this has more in common with the spirit of like, as good as it gets, uh -huh. right? James yes. Brooks, Albert Brooks movies. It's got that realism kind of, you know, that would be later carried on by uh, Judd Apatow, you know, mm -hmm. it's sort of like maybe without some of the more extreme subject matter that he'll go into, right? But um. Yeah, you know, and and so often it is just really those like small moments. It's not these huge sweeping grand gestures, right? It's not Heath Ledger taking over the PA for the school and singing in front of the entire high school. It's not, you know, someone uh, taking a helicopter and swooping down and stopping the marriage and sweeping them off, right? Like, yeah, real life love looks like tiny little moments, right? Holding Holding your partner's hand during a... You know engagement you know that both yep. of you are forced to go to and you neither of you want to be there but you know you've got to put on the faces right like mm -hmm. those little sort of bonding moments that you have with each other and the film does a great job of exploring and showing us those it, it does and i kept waiting uh for that that moment of that grand gesture some sort of big like thing in the middle of the street in new york and nick cage has like a big speech that he gives and his speech which i kind of played part of it at the beginning of the episode was not mm -hmm that huge grand thing it was fairly small but it was it was very pointed and it very it cut right through kind of the facade that share that Loretta's trying to put on and and I really appreciated that but I also loved how it was it was it was all those little moments there was never that one great big thing even the whole ending uh the climax of the movie that takes place in that eat-in kitchen with everyone around the table like it, uh. it crescendos but it crescendos in a way that feels like just a bunch of people happening to be in the same spot at the same time. And I loved how it just kept layering and it kept layering and layering and you get, uh, you know, Ronnie shows up and then the aunt and uncle show up with a completely different subplot that I had forgotten about. Like I, <laughs> there again, though, there's some great writing because they don't have any reason to be there at the end of the movie, except that she took their deposit the day before or whatever it was. And, never took it to the bank. We never see her take it to the bank, but it, we just like, I just assumed she did that before she started doing her, her shopping. Yeah. Yeah. One of those things they just, okay, you assume we don't need to show it to you and waste screen time, but we all know she took it. Yeah. But then to have it like circle back and they show up being like, Hey, uh, you, our deposit never made it to the bank. And that that's a big thing. And that shows just how wrapped up in Ronnie and, and all of this stuff she got that she completely forgot that. And it's like a nice extra layer of character for her. Um, yeah. that I really liked and also tying in the whole family thing, which that was a huge deal is like the family and how close knit they are and how, again, no matter what goes on, they can end it on a good note because they're, they're a loving family. Like even the blow up between Absolutely. mom and dad, Olympia Dukakis and, uh, and Cosmo, um, is, is not like this huge blow up, but it's a, it's a tense moment. But by the end of it, they're smiling and, and arms around each other again. Um, I just yeah. love that. And, every, and everything's sort of, I think also they did, well, this is sort of reinforced because everything is kept 
very small and very humble, right? Like mm -hmm. in in the in again a more traditional romantic comedy, it's like a big grand gesture, and so it's got to be at you know some grand opera house or a really nice country club, and like this entire scene, this gathering of like eight to nine, ten people, however many it is, it's like all in this little small New York kitchen, right? Yep. Like it can barely even hold all of them. I don't know if it was a set. And that's how they were able to film that or, you know, the, the actual logistics of that or if it was just a really cramped apartment. But yeah, so um, <laughs> but either way, again, you know, it's it's six, you know, all of them cramped around this little small, like almost card table. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so apparently very relatable. Apparently that was one of the most difficult scenes the directors ever shot. Uh, Norman Jewison, who uh -huh. I want to talk about him in a, in a minute. But he absolutely uh, he went on record saying it was one of the most difficult scenes he shot because he had all the people in that small space, and so he basically blocked it and staged it like it was a stage play. And he did all of that and got everything blocked and staged how he wanted, and then he figured out where he could put his camera inside yeah. of that and shoot it that way, which is – that's a veteran move by a director because you think about Absolutely. it like a film director is going to be like, all right, here's what the shots that I want, and I will put the people where they're going to be. And he's like, no, I need the performances to be what they are. So let's figure out where that's all going to happen, and then I'll shoot it based off of that. And I thought that was really cool to read, um, and it made that whole scene great because you've got uh, you've got Rose and Cosmo, and then Loretta and Ronnie are there. Aunt and Uncle are there. Old man, which is the greatest credit ever. The grandfather's just credited <laughs> as old man. Uh, he's sitting there, and then Johnny shows up, Danny Aiello, and so you've got them all crowded around. And I love the moment where. Everybody's happy again. We've we've gotten past the whole they're you know, Johnny and Laura aren't getting married, and then Ronnie asks her to marry him, and everybody's happy again, and there's grand you know, there's grandpa starting to cry and Cosmo's like, What's wrong? And she goes, I'm just so confused. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of the funnier moments in the in the film, one of the funnier one liners, definitely. And and old man was was great. In every scene he was in, he was stealing it. With his pack of dogs, he had his five dogs that went everywhere with him. <laughs> and uh, yeah, there's certain actors where they're just like able to just express so much through their face, right? He's definitely one of those people, you know. They mm -hmm. give him uh, they give him a lot of close ups because they let a lot of his face do the talking, especially because you know he is sort of a, a, a you know English isn't his first language, yep. so he kind of struggles with that. So. He has to do a lot of communicating through his facial expressions and through the inflections of his voice and whatnot, because a lot of us aren't going to understand what he's saying. Right. Yeah. And, and I just loved, I loved him as a character of like, he's on the outside witnessing all this happening. And like, he's, his son is, uh, he kind of, it's, it's interesting. I don't know if, like, I don't know if old man knew that Cosmo was having an affair of some kind, but he, some, he didn't quite believe him like he didn't it yeah. seemed like there was a moment especially that moment early on when when cosmo's getting into the car as he's coming back with his dogs and he's like he just gives him this look and maybe it's the whole like you need to pay for your daughter's wedding and maybe that's what he's kind of hung up on but then later on he runs into rose out on the street with john mahoney yeah um and so there, there's that tension going on but he doesn't want to create a scene on the street so, like, he knew a lot of what was going on, but only parts of it. And so I, I just really liked his character, and I liked how I liked how they never, like, made... They never manufactured drama with, like, the whole... Because uh, 
it would be very easy to write a scene where the old man lets something slip about seeing somebody else and like that sure. creates uh, some sort of dramatic tension between characters and they didn't do that he's just like there observing everything um, yeah and I, I like and I don't know if it's like a, a cultural thing as well or not but there's a there's be. almost sort of like implicit understanding that like people are going to cheat and if you like if you could just knock it off and come back, it's kind of okay, right? Like we see the Olympia Dukakis character do that with her husband. Mm-hmm. Um, we, you know, there's it's kind of insinuated with some of the other characters, and even uh, you know, with the share character with Loretta, you know, like you kind of get the sense that if you know he would have Danny Aiello character would have been okay with it if he just would have like accepted her or not. But of course, like mom, I also think it's funny too that just the whole thing because you know there's kind of this stereotype about like you know the italian mother being sort of like the domineering matriarch of the family Mm -hmm. um and it is kind of funny to see how much power that character has danny aiello's mother without i don't think we actually ever hear her talk the entire time if so maybe it's in italian when she's on her deathbed for a minute that's i think the only thing yeah it was like in the background but it is but it is funny because they do such a good job of like you know that's one of the issues that she has with him and that actually comes across to us like we don't mm-hmm. even really need to just take her word for it because we see we see that and we feel that and i think that at the end of the day it's also an important it's an important device to keep us rooting for the characters right anytime yeah. you have a protagonist that we've been rooting for and we're supposed to and you have them a cheat on a partner like it's a ballsy move you know because right right off the bat you know i mean a lot of people unfortunately have been cheated on they're bringing their expectations into the theater with them you know yep. so when they see that very distasteful and all that so it's a fine line that you have to balance when you're gonna let the characters do that so to have the other character do something that helps balance the scale a little bit you know, it makes it okay for us. It's like, ah, okay, well, it wasn't going to work out anyways, so I'm glad they found each other. Yeah, and I also like that uh, that Loretta has all the agency. She's making decisions. Yeah. There's no – she doesn't – it's not like a, a situation where Johnny is a terrible match for her because he's, uh, you know, just a complete jerk or he treats her poorly or he abuses her or he cheats on her but expects her not to or, like, these things that – you know, tropey romantic comedy type things that you'd see. She has the agency and then, and then like the, the mismatch of them is just that he's just not the right person for her. Like he's, he's not what she needs in a partner. Um, and she has to find that through Ronnie. Uh, so I just, I just liked that. Like they didn't set it up where, the problem with the Johnny and Loretta uh, relationship was from Johnny and that she somehow had to get out of it, but didn't have a way out. She's like, no, I'm I'm one foot out the door. And then you get like the ease of it because Johnny's like, I can't marry you. My mom's still alive. And, and, and like the whole, there's, there's a lot of superstition going on too, um, which I thought was really neat uh, and interesting. Yeah with all the good luck and bad luck and, and all this kind of stuff and just how tied into it they all are. Like Loretta's so, you know, uh, they keep bringing up how she's got bad luck from her first marriage because of everything yeah. that happened. <laughs> uh, and that's really the reason why Johnny says, I can't marry you is superstition. He was going to marry her. And then 
his mom doesn't die. And he's like, well, now if I try to marry you, she's probably going to die. I can't do that. I can't lose my mom. Um, so it was really interesting. I, I, I like that quite a bit. Yeah. It, it was different, I think, is what it was. It wasn't what I was expecting when I started yeah. the movie. Well, and it's interesting that you point that out now, too, because, you know, it's it's pretty much right there on the surface. But as I'm as you're saying it out loud, I realized that sort of the one character that really doesn't have a lot of that. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but if I remember correctly, is the Nick Cage character, you know, and I think that maybe that's yet another aspect of his character that they tried to really, uh, you know, present him as different than the rest. Right. Because mm -hmm. the thing about the Danny Aiello character is for all of his faults, I will say that. Him and Loretta do make sense as a couple when we're introduced to them, right? Mm -hmm. yeah, like, yeah. She's kind of at a point where she needs to settle a little bit and she can get taken care of. And she flat out tells, like, I'm pretty sure it's her mom, that she, like, she doesn't love him at all. It's just kind of a, a second marriage of convenience, right? Like, she's like, do you love him? And he, she says, no. And she says, do you like him? He's like, yeah, we get along great. You know, that so, was that was such a great moment because that was such a genuine reaction from her mom finding out she's getting married and being like, do you love him? No. Good. If the, if you love him, <laughs> they're going to break your heart. Do you like him? And, and you're right. Like that was, that was a cool moment. Yeah. But you know, and then, so again, this whole thing makes sense, but then this is the case with these movies, right? They always try to introduce this love interest that is different than whatever the norm they've established is right yep. so mm -hmm. in another romantic comedy with the you know buttoned up insurance salesman it's like the whole manny pixie manic pixie dream girl thing yep. right yeah the uh you know uh from garden state right natalie portman or any of these characters and it represents the people that they are not right that they are supposedly supposed to have more of even though you know both sides could probably stand to go in the middle so right I think that they did a really good job of having the Nick Cage character. And again, I don't know how much of that is on page and how much <laughs> of it is just Nick Cage bringing Nick Cage energy to that. But like, so for example, it sounds like you've done some research. I legitimately don't know. And maybe, it, it, maybe, you know, was the whole thing about his character's hand being gone in the script or was that some like, Nick Cage brought that to the set and like wasn't taking no for an answer. I'm not entirely sure. This is an original script, so it's it borrows from a few things, but like the script itself was an original screenplay. So I think that that was in there as a like plot device of that's the the thing that drove the wedge between the brothers was that accident yeah. and that accident causing him to lose his fiance because of his hand yeah. and and all of that. I will say. Cage did a screen test and the studio was like, eh, we're not so sure. And Cher lobbied for him. And, like, wow. and Cher was, uh, according to what I read, Cher was like, I want him in this or I'm not doing the movie. And so wow, that's crazy. they cast Nick Cage for it. And yeah, he did bring that energy. Like it's, this is right around the time. So this would have been the same year that he did Raising Arizona, okay. um, which is one of my favorite uh, Nick Cage movies. I love Raising Arizona so much. If you haven't seen it, you should. It's, I haven't. It was one of the movies that I brought up, but unfortunately it had already been taken, so we yeah, did this one. It's, it's definitely worth a watch, but it's right around that same era. The next year, I think, he would do um, Vampire's Kiss, which is, if you think he brought some energy to this and some weirdness, <laughs> you ain't seen nothing yet, because Vampire's Kiss takes all that and like cranks it to an 11. It's, gotcha. it's So he's uh, earning those meme points, right? Ooh, boy, is he ever. Um, <laughs> 
but yeah, he just he he brings Cage brings something to every role that he does, and it he always is doing something. He's never he's very rarely just sleepwalking completely through a movie. Even in a even in a role where he's being like really weirdly subdued, he's still bringing something to it. Um, And while I wouldn't call this his greatest performance, and he's not he doesn't have a ton of screen time, they they brought uh, there's an interesting chemistry between him and Cher. Um, I did also find it really interesting and kind of a, a cool, a, yet another sort of thing that I wasn't expecting in a subversion is typically a lot of times you see it's a, it's, you know, the 30 to 40 year old guy and in a romantic comedy, the, the female lead is going to be younger. And that was flip flop. Cher was about 40 yeah. when they made this and Nick Cage was in his mid twenties. I think in the movie, she's 38. I remember they called out cause I was mm-hmm. like, Oh, we're the same age. Look at that. Yeah, yeah, um. <laughs> she I think she said she was and Cage was like 24ish or so, 20 yeah. 23 something like that. So like it was neat to see that juxtaposition, right? And just flipping that mm-hmm. trope on its head. Um but I also he brings he's sort of the manic pixie dream boy for her in a lot of ways because he's bringing oh, the yeah. the energy and the free will or the free the the freeness and like this whole idea of living in the moment that she got yeah. away from because of uh, what happened with her previous marriage. But I feel like instead of it being a, a tropey thing where she's only into him for that and then she's going to get nothing else out of it, um, the way he comes to her at the end and sits in front of her family and it's like integrating her into that, integrating him into that family is going to, he's going to bring that energy with him, but it's yeah. not, it's, it's going to become part of this whole, like you don't get just Loretta, you get Loretta and Cosmo and Rose and the old man and you know, the old man's five dogs and all of the, you're part, that, like, that's all part and parcel. It's a package deal and he's yeah. willing to do that. And I like that. So absolutely. And I think that falls in line thematically with, again, you know, one thing we haven't really talked about is I think that through, through the music and through the environment, Maybe not as much through the cooking, but you know, I think the 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 Ita- the sense of like Italian identity, culturally speaking, mm-hmm. um, I do think that plays a sort of a significant factor. You know, oh, and big time. without being without being an expert on the culture, just having seen a lot of movies from all over the world and getting different senses, you know, um, that is one of the things that we're constantly informed of when it comes to Italian culture is the importance that is placed on family, right? Yeah. And, um, and, and we see that in other cultures, you know, Ju- uh, Judaism and, uh, and and the Spanish cultures and such, where it's like, look, you know, if you can't, if you can't make nice, nice with, with, with grandma, like you don't have a chance, right? It starts there. If she accepts you, then cool. But if not, like, you know, you got no shot. And so I think that this is definitely falls in line with that aspect of it. Yeah. Like and trying to integrate himself with the family. Yeah. And, and the idea of like, you know, mom kind of running the family because right away mm-hmm. we know that Cosmo doesn't like Johnny. As soon as he's mm-hmm. told that, that Johnny proposed, he's like, I don't like Johnny. And he's saying all that. But Rose is Rose just kind of shuts all that down. She's like, it doesn't matter what you care, what you want or who you like, this is happening. Uh, and you're just going to deal with it. And so without her having to be like domineering about it necessarily, she just mm-hmm. like lays the law down. Um, which, by the way, Olympia Dukakis was phenomenal in this. Yeah, she was she's great in everything. She is. Her and Cher both really earned those Oscars, I feel like. I feel like they really yeah. they did such a good job. Like I was just 
I was glued to every scene that had Rose in it. There was something about her performance. And the, like, she goes through this interesting arc because she knows that Cosmo is cheating on her. And she goes out and has dinner by herself. And we see the John Mahoney character having his second, uh, the second time we see him getting water thrown in his face. <laughs> which was great. It took me a second to remember. By the way, I'm sorry. Just to, just, to, just to be sure, that guy was the dad from Frasier, right? Yes. Was yep. that where he's from? Uh-huh. Okay, because it like it, it wasn't even until later after the movie. I was like, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to remember this. And then I was sitting there. I was like, Frasier, that's where it is. Huh? Yes, I did. Him. I did almost the same thing while <laughs> watching it. It was during that second scene he's in. I'm like, that's why it's Frasier. Okay. But what I liked was she sees this happen. And you can see where Loretta gets her insight into people comes from Rose. Rose as a character just can read people and knows people really well. And so she sees this happen and just calls him over and has him have dinner with her and basically runs him down and tells him exactly what he's doing and what he's doing wrong. And, you know, he's Perry, John Mahoney. He's still like trying so hard the entire time there. Those two are together. And she, she never had any intention of bringing him home. She never had any intention of doing anything with him. But she wanted to talk to this guy and just try to learn more about why men do what they do. And I just found that really fascinating, like, for her to do that. And, again, she has all the agency. She has all the control in that situation. And here you've got Perry, like, he's still trying to put his moves on. He's still trying to be, you know, the the little bit younger guy. And maybe, well, maybe an older woman I can do something with. You kind of get that feel, like he's trying that. And she's just shutting him down left and right. And, like, nope, uh uh-uh, no. And he's just not getting it. And it was that was a great scene. But I just, oh, more of Olympia yeah, Dukakis. And, that, yeah, and that's very much reflective of her character. And I think that the one, well, there's a number of aspects. But more so than any other aspect, I think the one thing that makes her so interesting is she's definitely the person that knows herself the most. Mm-hmm. But also knows everyone else around her. And but the, the the interesting thing that they do with the character in terms of the way she's portrayed is that she doesn't hold that against anyone, right? No. She doesn't think that she's better than anyone be, just because she knows them better than they know themselves, maybe, right? Mm-hmm. And it's that understanding of like, look, I know who. Like she even says that right when when uh, he's trying to sleep with her at the end, and you know he more or less you know kind of subtly asks her why not and she's basically says like look i know who i am and yep. and i'm not i'm not the wife that sleeps around basically right that's just yeah. doesn't matter what my husband do husband does i'm not a reactionary person and i think that so often in life when we talk about being a proactive person and being in charge of your destiny and all of that sort of stuff um that's sort of overlooked, right? If your entire response to something is based on someone else's response, that's not agency. That's not, you know, grabbing your life by the horns or whatever metaphor you want to do, right? Yeah. Um, you know, be, uh, being in control, being proactive, guiding your life is, again, I know who I am and this is what I do and you can do this to me or not. It has no effect on what I'm willing to do. I'm not going to sacrifice my morals because you did something against me or to offend me or to attack me or whatever, mm-hmm. because that would fundamentally change who I am. And really, I think that again, because she knows this about herself and because she's not using it against people, even the way that like with her husband, right? Like, and I think that's why it takes her towards the end of the movie to really confront him about his cheating is because 
before she does, she needs to understand it. Yep. That's why she keeps asking everyone along the way. Yeah. Why do men cheat? Why do men cheat? Why do men cheat? And then when she finally gets something that she can wrap her head around that makes sense, trends with what she knows of who her husband is and yes. all of this, right? Mm-hmm. Then she's like, oh, okay, I get it. Now that I understand this, I know that I am the type of person that can forgive my husband. Yep. He's willing to accept responsibility and move forward. And I'm going to make it real easy on him. I'm not going to bust his balls too hard. I'm just going to make him admit that he did it and tell him he has to stop. Yes. If he does that, we can go along. And I'm sure there's a part of her that's like, what am I going to do? I'm an 85-year-old woman or however old she is, right? Let's start over now, my kid and my husband. Right. Like, no. Like, you know, so... All of this is the response that someone who has lived a life where they've been introspective and, you know, they've learned about themselves. They've been perceptive enough to see the people around them. And like she knows how the world works, whether or not anyone else does. And I think that's why we respect her as much as, as we do. Yeah. And, and it's also nice because you've got on the flip side of that is Cosmo very reactionary towards like his – he's he's afraid of getting older he's afraid of dying the first time we see him he's talking about he's sitting up watching tv because he doesn't want to sleep it feels too much like death so so rather than sleeping he's just trying to keep himself awake um and then we see like that's probably where the you know obviously that's where he's running around on on rose and cheating on her is like this need to feel younger and to to this reactionary thing of a lot of that so it's a great balance to then have a character who is introspective, who does have a grasp of kind of what they want. It was really, really good. I can understand why all three, Cher, um, Olympia Dukakis, and uh, Vincent, uh, what's his last name? Vincent Gardenia, um, all got uh, nominated for Academy Awards for their parts. Uh, Cher and Olympia Dukakis won um, because Cosmo was great. Uh, I, I really enjoyed him. Um, and... And it was it was just it was cool to see like these what felt like real people, not characters in a movie, but actual three dimensional people, um, is something really really nice to see. Uh, so I, I appreciated that. It, yeah. Even down to the fact that like Cosmo's girlfriend looks like he would actually be Cosmo's girlfriend, right? Yes. Like, yep. So often they get Cosmo, and he's got like I don't know, you know, he's out there dating you know, some Nicole Kidman looking girl or even like younger, right? What like, yeah, like yeah. I don't know. Uh God, I I'm it's so funny. I'm getting so old now. I'm trying to think of young celebrities and I can't at all. <laughs> I know it's I'm sitting here searching for like I'm like, who is it? Uh yeah, no, I know nobody under 30. So anyways, um but yeah, but just the fact that you know she's of his age and she's maybe looks like she's a little bit more sexually provocative and whatnot. But mm-hmm. again, you know, to get some like 25 year old girlfriend off the street and 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 I like that again to your point it makes it believable you know mm-hmm. it does also i just got to say real quick cosmo's got some money because if you remember in that scene with perry and rose when they're coming back and she mentions the whole house and how they they own yeah. that that whole they own that house that's theirs and yeah. in new york like i was like whoa what kind of money is this <laughs> dude making i got to i got to become a plumber I guess it helps when you're selling all copper. Yeah. Yeah, right. But they allude to it too because they, you know, he he walks around like he doesn't have any money. And then, you know, his wife says something defective like, oh, you've got plenty. You can afford whatever you want, right? When he's talking about not paying for the wedding. Then, sure enough, when his dad like actually says, like, hey, hey, pal, you got to do this, right? 
Yeah. I die. I'm like, sure. No problem. Okay. I got it. I can cover it. No big deal. I got well, it. And that was a great moment because that's the first insight we get into the fact that Rose understands a little bit of what's bothering Cosmo and why he's acting the way that he is. When she says like, he has, your father has plenty of money. He's just gotten cheap and he didn't used to be that way, but he thinks if he doesn't, if he keeps all his money, he'll live forever. Yeah. <laughs> so like, she's already kind of got that idea about him. So then as the, things progress and she learns more about, she starts asking everybody, why do men chase women? And finally gets to like, Oh, so it's a, it's a being afraid of dying type of thing. Well, that fits with Cosmo. Uh, so I, yeah, I love stuff like that. Um, I, I, I really enjoyed So Norm Jewison is the director of this movie and Nor, Norman Jewison was when I first read the name, it, like it didn't click. It wasn't a, it wasn't a name that was, front of mind like uh, Scorsese or Spielberg or anything like that. And then I go start looking at uh, his um, directing credits and holy crap, uh, he directed a <laughs> whole bunch of like movies that are, I mean, in the heat of the night, uh, he did the, the original Thomas Crown Affair, Fiddler on the Roof, Jesus Christ Superstar, Roll, then, and Rollerball, like a very, right? <laughs> a very number of movies too. Uh, Rollerball yeah, was the one so, I did not expect. <laughs> that one threw me off. Yeah, that one definitely is not within the scope of the other ones. But there's another movie that I will say that I actually checked out randomly. I want to say within the last three to six months that he did. And it's called The Cincinnati Kid. Mm, it right. actually features um, Steve McQueen, among yep. some other people. And this is a fantastic movie. Like, I was shocked. It has an, an original soundtrack with some really amazing song by, like, some 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 renowned musician that eludes me right now. It's got a very young Anne Margaret who's very appealing in the film. She's wonderful in it. Steve McQueen's great. And it's basically about, like, a poker player. It's, it's very much in a similar vibe as Paul Newman's The Hustler. I was going to say. It's kind it of sounds... this, this guy. Yeah. It's more, it's a little bit more, it's a little bit more 60s color, right? It doesn't have that like cool smoky alcohol mm -hmm. vibe that The Hustler has. But I actually, I mean, I know The Hustler is kind of an untouchable film, but I actually like The Cincinnati Kid more than The Hustler. I think it's a a slightly more palatable version of that same story. And again, it may not have the exact aesthetic that The Hustler has, but mm -hmm. if you want something that's a little bit more sweatier and grimier, with the same sort of hmm. uh, approach, definitely check out the Cincinnati Kid. It was a great movie. I'd love to watch it again. I'm gonna check that out, and it's got Rip Torn in it and Edward G. Robinson. Yeah, and so uh, kind of the same. Uh, yeah, Edward G. Robinson was great. You recognize him right off the bat. But yeah, the Rip Torn thing was crazy because I know. <laughs> so I first, I first was introduced through Rip Torn, a movie some people know and others don't, and it actually just came out on the Criterion Collection recently. It's called Defending Your Life. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Books film. Have you heard of this one? Yes. Seen yep. it? So that was my first introduction to Rip Torn. Okay. And that was a movie that like me and my family used to watch quite a bit. So I was very familiar. Yeah. And then he pretty much started playing the same character on the Larry Sanders show. Mm -hmm. So that's like very much my idea of Rip Torn. Come to find later that he had a very, not a very, but he had a rather illustrious early career. Like he got started way earlier. And first of all, just physically, He's a very svelte dude when he's younger in yeah. the movie. So right off the bat, you know, he's, he's trim and, and, you know, he obviously wouldn't have that same physique later in life. So that was a large part of it. 
but kind of the moment you had where halfway through it's like uh, oh Frazier right like yep. halfway through I realize I'm like oh my god like <laughs> I've been waiting for Rip Torn for you know an hour and he's been here the entire time I can't believe that's Rip Torn wow Oh, that's amazing! I'm go back and check I'm out. putting that one on the list. I have not seen the Cincinnati Kid, but uh, I after watching this and realizing that Norman Jewis and some of the other movies he's done that I have watched, another one of his, by the way, that I really liked, and I went and saw this in theaters was uh, The Hurricane with Denzel Washington. Oh, and that's yeah, a fantastic yeah, great film, movie. absolutely. Um, and that performance was, was just amazing too. That yeah. was like I remember, he, yeah, he just. Especially the scene where he's in solitary and he's just going through like that was just a very, very powerful scene. So it was one of the last movies he did. Uh, Norman Jewison then went on to do he did Dinner with Friends in 2001 and The Statement in 2002 or 2003. Mm-hmm. And that's that's it. He hasn't done anything since then. Um, so, you know, that's fine. He, he's got started like in the late 50s. Uh, that's a long time. Plenty long uh, career. He was doing TV movies, too, before he actually broke over into Hollywood. So, yeah. Um, but one thing I'm noticing, the trend that I'm seeing, uh, is that he gets some outstanding performances from, and he is able to get some really good actors. I mean, Denzel Washington, The Hurricane is one of those. But like getting, because Cher in this movie was still, she wasn't, um, she'd been doing stuff on television for quite a while, but acting was fairly new for her uh, overall. Mm-hmm. Um, and to get the kind of performance he got out of her is amazing. Because she, she just, I mean, she just stole every scene she was in. I was not expecting that, uh, that level. I knew, and, and for some reason, I don't know why, because I knew she had won an Academy Award for this, but that was like in the back of my head the whole time, uh, or for yeah. the first like half of that I was watching it. And then as the movie keeps going on, I'm like, oh, that's right. She won, she won an award. Oh, she's really good in this. Oh, wow. <laughs> and it just kept like building. And then. You know, and then you bring in Nick Cage, and again, Nick Cage brings some different energy to this. And a young Nick Cage, yeah. I've always kind of said that, like with Nicolas Cage, if it's a established director, and especially you can kind of tell when he gets into something where he um, really respects the the director that he's working with, because he does try things and he goes in a few places. And this isn't the the most; it's certainly not a subtle role from him. Uh, but yeah. the movie needs his energy, and yeah, it, definitely. It, it, it needed what he brought to it. What, even with the sort of New York accent, he was—I'm not really sure what that accent was. <laughs> um, I don't know where it was either. It was somewhere between Creole and New York, and <laughs> British, and might have even thrown a little like Swahili in there. Some I don't know. I yeah, no I, what the hell he was I did capture a little bit of audio <laughs> that that uh, that sounds pretty good in there. Um, and uh, in one moment, and where I was like, "What? What did he say there?" I had to kind of rewind it a couple of times. <laughs> um, but it's great. And like the first time you meet him, he's just down in this dark, nasty basement, shoveling coal into a, a an oven. And by yeah. the way, so that was a real place. That's a real bakery in New York, and it's not a bakery okay. anymore. Um, it's uh, it's a different restaurant, but all that um, apparently all of the ovens and everything are still in the basement there because it's just too costly to pull them out of there. Oh wow! And I'm looking at that and I'm just thinking that is awesome to have these like built-in ovens in the basement of this bakery where you can just bake all day. Uh, like that kind of stuff is fascinating to me. I love that and like delis and all these all these things that are like they're so so indicative of New York city of Manhattan and Brooklyn and what you get there. And like, the, it's just a different world. 
I just love yeah. the idea of that. Um, oh, another little thing before I forget about this. Uh, so when Johnny comes back from uh, Sicily and he gets in the cab at the airport, uh, which that's a great kind of funny moment, right? When he gets in the cab and it pulls away and he's like, ah, and he has to go back and get his bags. It's like old school slapstick, right? It like, is. Or it's, like something out of Bugs Bunny. And it's it's so well done because you it happens the first time. And then when he gets out of the cab, he forgets him again. And then yeah. you get the third time. You get the payoff of it when he goes to leave the house that night. And he starts walking out the door <laughs> and he forgets. And he's like backing into the door. And it is. It's a great like piece of slapstick. But, but when he gets into the cab, he says uh, he gives the address of 19 Cranberry Street in Brooklyn. That was the the actual address of the exteriors that they used for the shots, and I, I love wow. when I love when movies do that. I love those kind of little yeah. details. Um, so yeah, I thought that was great. I, but- I haven't spent I haven't spent enough time over there in New York, man. It was kind of one of these things where it was like growing up, you get a certain impression. So I'm from Los Angeles, California. I've been okay. here like my whole life, mm-hmm. and so you know you get a certain impression of places or this an idea in your head for whatever reason. And I was always convinced for the longest time that just New York was not a place that I was really gonna dig. And then I ended up having to go over there on business and stay over there for a few days. And like, it was a super cool place. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not, as someone who's from California, like I'm not used to walkable cities, right? And so just being able to like trip around and drop here and then jump into a subway and go there. Like it's something, there's something very freeing and very appreciable about being able to live that way. Yeah. And, and look, I can understand that, uh, you know, it's obviously it's loud, it's fast paced. Um, there's, there are definite detriments to New York city. Um, but I, the times that I have spent there, um, have been very cool and, and it's just a, it's a totally different, I, I grew up and live in uh, Northern Michigan. So I'm like very rural, very way out there, um, away from major cities. Like the closest metropolitan area to me is Grand Rapids, which is 150 miles South. Right. So like, <laughs> I have to make it, a, I have to dedicate time to get to a metropolitan area. Um, so yeah, from, wow. so it's, it's a complete sea change when I go to a city like New York, but there's just something there's something about a city like that, whether it's New York, whether it's Chicago, where these kind of older, bigger cities, there's a, there's like a cadence and a rhythm to them that is, that, that makes it just a different place. And, and and I think part of why New York especially is because it was such a setting for so many um, media properties, because there's so many people there and it was the setting that you used. Um, But it just has like this feel to it that, uh, that is really cool. I don't, I mean, could I live in New York? I think the younger version of me wanted to, um, and I just never, sure. it never worked out. Could I do it now? Probably not. I, I probably wouldn't want to be there more than a few weeks before I'd lose my mind, but it's hard to say. <laughs> but like, you, you know, you see the uh, the deli that she goes into that her aunt and uncle run and mm. like that, that just fun feeling where it's the old couple are running the deli and there's a few people in there or uh. the, when, um, the bakery, like I said, is just really cool. By the way, the uh, old couple in the bakery, when Cher first walks in there, um, and they're buying the bread and they're leaving, that's Martin Scorsese's mom and dad. That's so funny because I was I was sitting there as the credits were rolling, and like one of the last names to pop up was a Scorsese name, and I was like, "Look, I know that these aren't the only Scorseses in the world, but I'll also say that I haven't, I don't know of any other ones. So uh, I would I would love to." know if that was like his aunt or his sister or something like that so it's funny that you mentioned that yeah i, th- I thought that was uh hilarious but i don't know there's just something i love movies set in new york um there's just yeah. a feel to them 
And and what I like it's gotta, too, it's got a. I was just gonna say what I like too is there's so many different ways that New York can be portrayed. Yeah, I know that's the thing. It's like there's certain cities to to your point where it has a very distinctive and idiosyncratic personality, you know, and mm-hmm. that's what you're trying to sort of talking about. And there's you know in L.A. for example, like you can you can find a number of different L.A.s. You can find you know seedy, grimy L.A. You can find rich person by the beach L.A. Yep. You can find um, you know, very sort of traditional suburbs. You can find like there's, you know, you can pretty much, and then we've got mountains, we've got sea, everything's accessible, you know? So it's, there's sort of like these little pockets, but, um, to, to go somewhere where like the entire city is sort of like of just one specific vibe, maybe there's, you know, certain boroughs or something like that, that have a slightly different feel here and there, but by and large, like I went to a few different places in, know new york new york city proper and Mm -hmm. you know they all kind of share this this similar vibe the similar feel you know my my experiences with new york have been there's a similar feel but there's definitely distinct neighborhoods and there's there's distinct parts of it but it all feels like it falls under that larger umbrella of new york like so so it's like the same genre with different sub genres kind of yeah there's i feel like a lot of that and and honestly I, i like it uh, Amy That's in the cool. chat, by the way, is saying that uh, she's contractually obligated to hate New York. She's from the Boston area, so oh, there you go. You know, but Boston's another city. I Boston is a city I've never been to, but I want to go um, because sure, I, I do feel like there's that that same feel. I, Chicago is one that I enjoy because it sort of feels it, downtown Chicago has a very similar uh, to me kind of aesthetic that New York has because it's a big city like that. It's a different feel, um, mm. but I, I love that kind of stuff. And part of it is that it's so different from what I'm used to. So it's like I'm getting to kind of see what I saw in movies growing up. And now I'm getting to experience that. And it's just so it's so different. You know, Uh, I I like to joke about people that are around here that never leave the county. And Mm -hmm. that can happen. And that can even happen in places like New York where you just never leave your neighborhood. There's like a there's a few blocks of area that you just live your whole life in because everything is right there. So it's very different. Um I love that. And I, and I liked how this movie didn't try to like, it made New York part of it and it feels like New York, but it whatever, uh, I never felt like it got overly too much that even with like the, the, the strength of all the accents and kind of the, the way that they would talk because there's like New York, Italian Americans have a different cadence to their speech and like a different speech pattern. Um, and and it, but that always felt to me as an outsider, it felt real. And that's exactly what it is. Yeah. It feels like the, like whatever the equivalent of like the sort of real locals would be for New York. Right. Because it's sort of like how, when LA is portrayed, right. Anytime you see like LA in most films, it's always like downtown Los Angeles and the West side, you know? So it's either like the South central gangs or it's like the, you know, rich west siders but my experience having lived here my whole life and being from the area too is plays a lot more like paul thomas anderson movies than people give it credit <laughs> for so paul thomas anderson movies take place in the san fernando valley which i'm actually very adjacent to okay and it's 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 kind of dirty there's a lot of industrial parks uh it, you know there's a lot of like local restaurants and strip malls and things of that nature and that's sort of like the la that i know Whereas the L.A. that typically gets represented in films is like 
but all of the actors that come over from other states know because that's the world that they're getting in. But like, if you actually live out here, like, it's a very different feel. And like I said, the only person that I've really seen consistently represent what I would say is like real Los Angeles is Paul Thomas Anderson, which he's from San Fernando Valley, so he would know as well. Hmm. That's interesting. I, uh, yeah. LA is another place I've never been to, um, and I would like to visit at some point. Just because again, uh, you know, movies and, and television and just this idea of what it is. And I just, I, I like to see places. I like to see different things. And it's so California yeah. and LA is so different from where I'm at that it's kind of something ah. that I want to check out. Um, Man, and we're very much, like I said, you know, like if you, you know, if you want to go see, you know, all of the wealthy, beautiful people eat at restaurants that you can't afford, we can take you there. And then if you want to go half an hour across the way, we can go to like a really shady dive bar behind a homeless <laughs> encampment where you can get $3 beers and no one's checking IDs, right? Like mm -hmm. it, literally any subsect of whatever you want to find, you can find <laughs> out here. That's what's crazy about it. That's amazing. Uh, so I had to, because this movie had a few moments and I had to capture some audio. Um, and I want to play a few of these cause these are great. Uh, the most famous, uh, line from this movie, and I believe it is hit the list of like some of the more, uh, famous movie quotes of all time, um, is, is share. Uh, and here it is. Snap out of it. When he tells her that I love you, uh, <laughs> She slaps him twice. That second slap, you can tell, was like the the sound effect of it was added in post. But I think the first slap was uh, real. It, it, that maybe first... she forgot her line real quick, and I was just like, <laughs> buy a quick extra second. <laughs> Hold on, let me, let me do this one again. Uh, yeah. But like how you repeat the question when you're not sure what the answer is going to be. Yes. Exactly. What am I doing? What am I doing? I'll tell you what I'm doing. Yeah. Uh, oh. <laughs> and uh, and that was that's a great line, and it's a great react. Like it's such a great reaction to. I'm in love with you. Slap, snap out of it. What's the matter with you? Like, oh, it's so good. It, it, now it is funny because so one of the one of the things that I really like to note about like famous quotes through cinematic history is the nature in which some of them are delivered. Right. Mm -hmm. So thinking about like your action one-liners, you know, like "Welcome to Earth" from Independence Day, yep. or you know, anything from Predator and stuff like that. They're always these very sort of stagey moments, right? Like. You know, the camera almost like pushes in to set them up and, you know, they get these hero shots. Uh, what I thought was so interesting about this line is is, is like how flippantly it was set up, right? Because it's this moment that you, everyone knows. And so I figured it was going to be, you know, the climax of some, you know, great buildup scene or whatever. And it's like, it's actually like kind of like in the middle of the discussion. Like yeah. it keeps going from there. It's not like the ultimate summation where, you know... So I thought it was interesting that uh, again, like you know, none of the none of the quotes in this film, for as good as they are, um, it's it's all done just as sort of very matter of factly. You know, we don't get a lot of the traditional romantic comedy where you know the music starts to swell up and yep. build to this crescendo, and you know, you it issues a lot of that for as we've indicated a lot of the realism. Also, I thought that one of the aspects of the film that really helped to solidify that is the cinematography. Mm -hmm. One of the things I was telling my buddy this morning, um, the uh, guy I do the, the, uh, our show with my co-host, Ryan Siebold, dope guy. And I was telling him, I was like, one of the most interesting things about the film is within the first few minutes, 
I was commenting myself how much the film almost looked like a documentary about New York, like yeah. the way that like Sydney, every Sydney LeMay film looks or something like that. Right. Like it's kind of, it's kind of gritty. It's a little grimy. It's not this like, you know, I think, uh, pot, I mean, I know he can't control the weather, but I think that it's more like overcast, but yeah, you know, it's more of a muted color palette. Uh, there's not these bright costumes, you know, everything's sort of, exists more in that like middle range when it comes to just the overall color design and everything. So I think that by shooting it in kind of a more of a, a documentary fashion or giving it at least that feel also helps to solidify that again, you know, these are, these are real people telling real stories. It felt almost like um, the French connection, like that era of filmmaking, yeah. mm -hmm. that seventies no. era of filmmaking in that. And, and, that made this story work because exactly what you just said, it makes it feel more like real. And yeah. I love that about it. So, yeah. And I, and I love, cause you're right. There's two types of like iconic lines in movies. There's the ones where everything drops out and they, they play to the line. And then there's stuff like this where mm -hmm. the line is just part of it, but it stands out. And that, yeah. that moment jumps out at you. Um, and so that's what this one did. Uh, this is Nick Cage doing you figure it out. Just listen. <laughs> you look beautiful. Your hair. Yeah, I had it done. What is going on there? There's like, he's dropping an <laughs> R like he's from Boston on your hair. Your hair. <laughs> and yeah, like, like he couldn't, he couldn't think of the word beautiful halfway through the word beautiful. So he just sort of gave up. I don't know what's going on. There. <laughs> it's amazing. I don't, it would, it would it would be interesting to just sort of hear his approach. You know, it's kind of like so. Okay, so so for example, I have like some music friends, right? Mm -hmm. One of the things that we'll talk about is every now and then there's certain like guitarists or musicians that are on so many drugs that they don't yeah. perceive the world the same way, right? Right. And so when you listen to like their guitar solos, they reflect that. So, for example, if you go back and listen to a lot of, like, Keith Richards' guitar solos, um, like, especially in, like, Sympathy for the Devil, like, they're these really weird, like, stop-start things, and, mm -hmm. like, the melodies aren't what you expect. My point, The point is that, like, I think most of us either think a certain way naturally or we're influenced by the same media growing up to where we kind of think... In, the certain in, in certain terms, visually, musically, et cetera. And then there's someone where they're either just naturally out there, they're on a lot of drugs, they've gotten some sort of training that we haven't been exposed to. Maybe they're from a different part of the country, looks at these things differently. But they have a way of thinking about things, a way that's different from the rest of us. And so then what comes out natural is very natural for them. Mm -hmm. They're just like, well, you know, I just did this and that because this and that, da-da-da. And to the rest of us, it's like, I can't wrap my head around what you're doing. Like, you say, well, this goes with this naturally. Like, me, that's like putting a square peg in a round hole. It doesn't yeah. fit. And yet, for some reason to you, it fits together perfectly. And I mm -hmm. think that Nick Cage is one of those guys where it's like, in his head, he's like, what, what do you mean that's a weird decision? I mean, you know, uh, a, a, Carib a Caribbean accent goes... uh. <laughs> Very well with this, uh, you know, English period piece. I don't know what you're talking about. Of course, they had cornrows in the 1800s. What <laughs> exactly. Do I, don't, I don't. I don't know. There's, there, there is a. Uh, so the movie Vampire's Kiss that I mentioned earlier in the show. Um, he I, goes, he goes for it in that. And there are clips on YouTube that have commentary track with him and the director. And it's it's some brilliant stuff because he 
like even he's not quite sure what he's thinking sometimes in the movies. <laughs> There's a moment where he's doing it's one of his weird faces and he's like, "You know, I was uh, uh Actually, I'm not really sure what I'm going for here. Like exactly what I, what I was doing there. It's just I just I just did it, um, and yeah. I think that's that's why, like Nick Cage can be a meme. He you can make fun of him, but at the same time, there's there's a lot of process going on in his head, and there's a reason behind what he's doing. Um, and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, you know, sometimes you get uh, Mandy, which his performance in Mandy, if you haven't seen that, is really good. Uh, that movie. But only have I seen it. That's actually one. It's actually, one of my like top ten films of all time. I adore Mandy more than I should. I saw that movie like five times in a row. Like I didn't even see it in theater. Someone else saw it first, recommended it to me, and then I was like, "Oh, this is this is absolutely my shit. I need to own this right away." Yeah, like it's great, yeah, but Mandy. like his performance is really good in that. Yeah. For as out there as it is, and then you know, and then he might do something like uh, Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans, or whatever it is. <laughs> And you're just like, what, what, what's happening here? Like, what are you doing? But he's always doing something. And this was another one of those movies where he's doing something and he brought, like, it just works somehow. I don't, I, I can't explain how it worked, but it worked. And so just that, the way he said beautiful and yeah, like, okay, cool, Nick. We're going to go with it. We're, we're going to go with it. That's great. Um, this was just old man. I just had to get this because it, it made me chuckle. Buongiorno. Just loved him coming in to the to the kitchen like that in the morning, and he's he's sitting down and he's seeing everybody sitting there eating oatmeal, and just that's that's it. I don't know why that just cracked me up. <laughs> um, aunt and uncle the next morning after their little amorous play, uh, after he does mm-hmm. his uh, moonlight, which by the way that was the the only full moon I've seen that's lasted longer than that was in the movie Werewolf. Uh, where that was like a full moon that lasted like a month. Because this was a full moon that lasted like three nights. Um, yeah. It was impressive. <laughs> what is what is Werewolf? I can't say I remember, I've heard uh, of it. There, it's, a, it's a really, really bad... I actually have only ever seen it on Mystery Science Theater 3000. Uh, <laughs> okay. It's, it's awesome. that type of movie. Uh, but the, <laughs> the next day when we see Aunt and Uncle in, the, um, in their deli, uh, and just when... I just love this line. You were a tiger last night. <laughs> you were a tiger last night and just the yeah. look she gives him i'm like oh that's <laughs> that's a couple that love each other like they yeah and I, they, part of it work. too is honestly like there is an aspect of the physicality of the characters that sells it right because mm-hmm. it's like they're not these young sexy 25 year olds like they're in their 60s very frumpy they look like every they look like every person in the grocery store when you're shopping at 6.30 p.m. or whatever, yep. right? Like, Absolutely. So I think there's that element of, again, you know, it's like uh, it, there's just it just makes it feel more real or something, you know? Yep. Uh, and and, and I love that. Exactly. Um, okay. So this when I when I was talking earlier about kind of the, the cadence and the, the pa- speech patterns and how they're just different. Um, here's a couple of uh, examples of that. First is Danny Aiello. My scalp is not getting enough blood sometimes. Like the way he says that, to my ear, sounds so weird and so foreign. <laughs> my scalp is not getting enough blood sometimes. But then I yeah, think about it and it's like, no, I've heard a lot of dialogue like that. Pete, somebody's got to talk that way <laughs> somewhere. Well, it's funny, too, because I wonder if culturally like so. So my wife is Jewish and that very much reminds me of like the way that you would often hear like 
the superstitious uh, Jewish grandparents in a, yes. in a movie, right? Mm-hmm. Or like, or the or the aunt, right? They would mm-hmm. always have, or like a a lot of the characters in like my Greek, my big fat Greek wedding, right? Mm-hmm. That yes, was like yes. the, the sister character that was always going on about all these different superstitions. So it's like, I think there's something about um, a lot of a lot of uh, the cultures from that geography where you know there is more of that like whole superstition and everything. So um, it's it's just it's. I always think it's funny anytime it's like, oh, yeah, you know, uh, uh, yeah, such and such has been a bastard. You must not getting enough magnesium. Are you having enough liver, right? <laughs> yes. Like that sort of thing is yes. very much in line with all that sort of stuff, you know? Oh, it was so good. And and it just, again, it's Danny Aiello playing a character that we're not used to seeing him play either, which is yeah. even better. Yeah, the, the shy, sheepish guy, right? Like yep. usually he's ready to like bust out a lead pipe and break some kneecaps. And exactly. He's like, oh, well, you know, da 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 Um. This was just a cool, or is an interesting exchange. This is early on. This is Cher and Danny Aiello um, in the restaurant, and also you've got um, uh, the waiter, like who I guess must be their personal waiter, the the, the tiny little old Italian man, uh, Popo, I think. <laughs> uh, so this was just this is when he pushes, he pulls up with the dessert cart uh, at that moment. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Will you marry me, Popo? Take the cart away. Very good, Mister Loretta. <laughs> Are you proposing marriage to me? Yes. <laughs> She's just like, that's her reaction. Bobo, take the card away. Very good. Very but I love good. his yes. like, very good. Yes, of course. Right? Like, you get the sense it doesn't matter what you say to him. He's going to be, yes, of course. Very good. Right? <laughs> yep. I loved Bobo. Uh, um, so there's a moment where she sees him off at the airport and – of course, obviously he's he's all nervous, and she's she she gets him off in the airport, and then she's standing there next to the older lady as they're watching the plane get ready to take off, and that old lady oh, yeah. just starts on her diatribe of I put a curse on the plane, <laughs> and tells the whole story of her sister cheating, uh, taking her her man fifty years ago or something, and then like I just loved all of that. It was so great. You can just feel the vitriol in this old woman's words, and then. Share re- responds with, I don't believe in curses. And it's just this. I don't believe in curses. <laughs> Neither do I. <laughs> like, you just got done telling us about the curse that you put on this, like in great detail. Nah, neither yeah. do I. <laughs> it <was> so good. <laughs> it's funny too, because you actually played uh, clips from like both of my, we referenced anyways, uh, both of the two biggest laughs for the, in, uh, for, in the movie for me. The first of which was that line that she just said, and then the other one was what we talked about uh, at the end, where the 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 grandfather's crying. Yeah, and she said, "I'm just so confused." I'm just confused. <laughs> um, I love the introduction to Cosmo, where he's sitting in his robe and he's watching TV, and Loretta comes home, and it's at that point that I'm like, "Oh, okay, so she's, she, you know, I." At that stage, I wasn't sure if she was playing a lot younger than she is living at home. Or and you know obviously there's a cultural thing there too of still living at home, yeah. um, because the there's the whole scene where she's talking with her mom about are you going to move in here or not, uh, which I I found very fascinating as well. But I loved the introduction yeah. to Cosmo when she goes over to Pop and uh, and he just responds with, I can't sleep anymore. It's too much like death. <laughs> <laughs> and he's got like the thousand yard stare while he's delivering that line to it. It's too much like death. And I was yeah. just, oh, and it would be, brilliant. And it would be interesting to watch this film again in 20 years and see how you view it, right? Because I'm sure that 
a lot of that probably hits a lot closer to home, you know, when that's actually yeah. something that, or, you know, you, you, it's inevitable, right? And you've either accepted it or you have, or you haven't, but either way, you know, like that's something that occupies a lot more of your psychology, right? When yeah. you're in your sixties and seventies than it does for, you know, us right now. Mm -hmm. So it would be interesting to know if that would change anything or not. Or I don't know if you have any, you know, slightly uh, older listeners maybe that can speak to their experience from that, maybe chime in or hit us up, you know, hit you up on an email or something like that. But um, yeah. yeah, it would be very interesting to know how, you know, age may or may not affect your interpretation of this film. Yeah, definitely. Um, so we mentioned earlier how she tells her mom that she doesn't love Johnny. Um, and her mom's like, that's good. You know, don't don't love him and stuff. And then that gets brought back at the end, a callback. Um because her mom once again asked her if she loves Ronnie. Do you love him, Loretta? Ma, I love him awful. Oh, God, that's too bad. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's such a good delivery of that. There again, that's Olympia Dukakis uh, just nailing it. But uh, I love that line and that And even back. Cher's response, too. Just like the rapid fire, like yep. just without skipping a beat, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and, and there's just something about that phrase, like, I love him something awful, right? Yep. Like, it's like... In a vacuum, the word awful has a negative connotation, and then you're introducing it to use in a positive light, which is actually interesting because one thing we haven't really mentioned as of yet is that very much speaks to Loretta's character, you know, which is like, I think that oftentimes, for me anyways, some of the best romantic comedy or some of the best way to approach maybe more emotional content is to have that detached character, right? That cynical character. Mm -hmm. When I made reference earlier to as good as it gets, like I'm thinking right now, like, oh, that could very well be because much the way the Jack Nicholson character is very cynical, take no bullshit, kind of knows where he is, life's passed him by, it is what it is, tail end. Uh, she's very much the same way, you know, she's yeah. not an overly emotional person she's you know very matter of fact you could argue even cynical and jaded um and yeah you know so for someone like that to portray these very strong emotions i think makes it resonate more because we know that they're not an inherently emotional person yes. you know and i think that's what so much of the film is about too with regards to the Nicholas Cage character is he represents the expression outpouring of emotion, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. If you look at it, all of the characters in this film are very bottled up from the dad to the Olympia Dukakis character, Cher character. Uh, maybe Danny Aiello is probably the least so, but even then he's like the one we kind of like respect because he's a little like whiny or pathetic or there's mm -hmm. just something about it where he's, He's like a little bit too much of a mama's boy, right? Like he never sort of grew out of that. But yeah, his uh, his bottled so, yeah, up so, his bottled up isn't that he doesn't express emotions. It's that he's like in this state of arrested development. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, so and then and then we have you know the the opening scene, Nick Cage's opening scene outside of that one shot of him on the phone is you know he actually gets like a full-on monologue yeah he gets to go on this very emotional outpouring like i have no hand <laughs> i have no wife like like very very nick cage stuff going on but again for a bunch of characters who have you know been just very modest you know no no you know the mom knows that her husband's cheating on him and there's no throwing dishes and crying in the middle of the night it's very much like well this is a thing. What are we going to do about this? You know? Yeah. And mm -hmm. everybody kind of has that very emotionless 
cerebral reserved approach to life. So then you see the Nick Cage character come in and, and yeah. And then by the end of it, when the Loretta character does accept Nick Cage, it's almost as though she is accepting emotions and feelings into her life as well. Yeah. That's why, that's why she feels again, because she hasn't felt for so long. And Mm -hmm. he like brings it to her and says, Hey, here's feelings. Remember these? She's like, Oh yeah, these are actually, even though they suck sometimes, they're actually really nice others, right? Yeah. Yep. Uh, and and final one, and this was this was one of the laugh out loud moments for me. And the audio clip won't do it justice because there is a uh, a visual component to it that that is the the icing on the cake. But it's this moment because at, they sit down for dinner, and she starts passing out plates, and the old man gets his plate, and then immediately turns around and sticks it underneath the baby gate for the dogs. And then comes back to the <laughs> yeah. table, and Cosmo's like, "My father, my father would need will need another plate." And they get another plate to him, and they go through dinner. And at the end of that, he gets up again, and he's two steps away from the table with the plate when Rose catches him and just says, "Oh man, to give those dogs another piece of my food, I'm gonna kick you till you're dead." <laughs> it's <laughs> I did forget that was the other laugh out loud line for me as well. And that it's the, the it's one. the look on his face too cuz the 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 end part of that line I'll kick you till you're dead and it's a close up of his face and he's just like yep she'll do it and turns around and just goes back and sits at the table. <laughs> it's so good. I laughed so hard at that moment. <laughs> this is There's also something about the fact that he did it just sort of like in the open as well. Yeah. Like normally you know it'd be like They'd try to be doing it sneakily or, mm-hmm. you know, behind their back. And we'd think that they're getting away from it. And then she'd say something at the end. And we'd be like, ah, she knew all along. Of course she did, right? But this, they're just, like, doing it brazenly in the open. And it's like, well, does she not really care? And then it's like, oh, no, she totally cares. Right. Yeah, yep, exactly. <laughs> I th- This is a, a really good movie. And I'm kind of, I'm both glad that I waited until I was sort of in this stage of my life to watch it because I can definitely appreciate it more now, but I'm also bummed that I slept on it for so long because it is a really good movie. Um, I think had I known, uh, it's sort of one of those things I'm finding like Norman Jewis and Billy Wilder. I'm, I'm just, I'm rediscovering some of these older directors that I've heard of before, but I never really dove into, um, their catalogs that I'm watching their movies. Like I've watched a couple of Billy Wilder movies for this show, uh, the apartment and, um, sunset Boulevard. And just, I was just like, okay, I'm sold. Like <laughs> if it's got his name on it. I'm ah, ready to watch it. You know, these are as good as as everyone says they are. Yeah, exactly. It, it's one of those things where, you know, expectations can overbuild a movie sometimes. For and sure. I talk about that all the time. Yeah, you hear like you hear nothing but like, oh, Sunset Boulevard's a classic. And so I sit down to watch it and I get done with that movie and I was like, that was better than I thought, like than I expected <laughs> it to be, even though it was built up so much. Like it's that good. Um the apartment I knew nothing about at all. That the apartment went in places that I wasn't prepared for, and that made it even better. Um those are both films that I haven't seen, so now I got to go watch them. Definitely, definitely do. Uh, and and after seeing this, it's like, well, I want to go back and watch the Cincinnati Kid, right? And watch some of these other Norman Jewison uh, movies that I that I haven't seen, and revisit some of the ones that I have, like the original Thomas Crown Affair. Um, or it makes me want to go back and watch The Hurricane again because I haven't seen that. I've maybe seen it once since I saw it in in the theater in '99. Um, 
I and, actually got uh, and Justice for All on my list. Uh, I have like one of the old oh, school, yeah, like Red yeah. Envelope Netflix subscriptions with the DVDs still. Nice. And uh, yeah, and I've got uh, yeah in the heat, in, uh, and then I have never seen it in the heat of the night either. So that's like a total blind spot that I've got to correct. Yeah, that's that's another one I think I want to revisit because that's a good movie. And and plus, like, so Sid, I have heard. Sydney Sydney Poitier. I mean, yeah, right. That's all you need. Um, no, this this is a good movie. I definitely recommend it. And I'm glad that uh, that we settled on this. Um, and this was a great yeah. choice. So thank you, and thank you, Jason, for being on. This was super fun. Yeah, dude. Thanks for having me. It's a lot of fun, dude. I always love when I'm able to come on and actually, you know, talk talk with people that like really know film, and we can sit here and like you know examine it a little bit closer. Yeah, and uh, you know, look at some of the more like technical aspects and some of the you know, creative decisions that went into making it what it was, you know, yeah, it's always absolutely. The, like, I always tell, I say like, like as much as I enjoy watching a movie, like I almost enjoy talking about it afterwards. is like my favorite part, right? It's like being in the theater is cool, but it's like walking out with your buddy and going, grabbing a beer and talking about it afterwards. Yep. Like that's, that's kind of my favorite part, you know? So I love coming on here and talking to knowledgeable folks like you about it. Well, thank you. And, and I'm the same way. I love having the discussions. I like to talk about and pick stuff apart and, and get another viewpoint too, because sometimes somebody else is going to see or experience it in a way that's completely different from me. And, and I, I love to have that conversation. And that's why I also like both seeing new movies that somebody suggests, but also showing somebody a movie that they've never seen. Uh, sometimes it's one that I, I find near and dear to my heart. And sometimes it's like this where we're both going in blind uh, and it makes for great yeah. conversation. So this was really cool. Now you do a show breaking down movies, uh, with uh, you mentioned your co-host earlier, but uh, let people know about that and where they can find it. Yeah, absolutely. So we are called Esoterica Cinema. Esoteric plus an A plus Cinema. Esoterica Cinema. You can find us pretty much all of the different streaming platforms: Spotify, Apple, Amazon, all that good stuff. And uh, we also have a website, EsotericaCinema.com, where we have like a web player, so you can check out all of our stuff there. So yeah, so we are a film discussion program, and there's a couple things that really we try to separate ourselves from the pack on. Uh, the first is much like you trying to go a little bit deeper into the analysis. Mm-hmm. We really look at, you know, uh, who's the director, writer, cinematographer, why are the reason they're making their decision? What is the sort of net impact that all of this has on the film that we just watched? And then another thing that we do that's kind of unique that really haven't found anyone else doing this. And trust me, it's a lot of work, so we know why. But uh, <laughs> we do these... We, we're, we're sort of big comedy people, right? So we usually have this sort of little like jokey little three to five minute improv set that we do at the top of our show where one of us introduces the other with some inane quality and we sort of play into it. And then one of the other things that we do is we make these audio sketches. Uh, they're basically like comedy sketches like you would find on Saturday Night Live, but instead of being video based, they're audio based. Sure. Uh, they're fully produced, fully written, voice acting from us and everything. And we always try to do it... Uh, most of them are fake commercials. Sometimes they'll be fake trailers. Sometimes they'll just be sketchy sketches. And it's always tied into the movie that we just watched. It's inspired by it, right? Okay. Um, so, like, our first two movies we did this season were RoboCop and Amadeus. And so we did two sketches, one of which was called Dick Shooter, uh, which is a <laughs> uh, fake toy uh, based on the scene where the one guy gets shot in the dick by RoboCop, of yep. course. Mm-hmm. And then the other is uh, Salieri's Mediocre Italian Restaurant, uh, where Salieri opens an Italian restaurant that's just nowhere near as good as Mozart's, despite his best efforts. Hey, I'd buy so, that for um, a dollar. 
Hey. So yeah, so um, you know, we we try to have some fun with that and uh, the great thing is that, you know, that's just we usually we just put that in with our little commercial break because hey, we don't have sponsors, so we don't have commercials, so we figured not why might why not make our own silly commercials. And uh yeah, so we try to bring equal measure a sense of levity and a sense of comedy, but also still really trying to get some good discussion going with some deep insight and analytics. Like it's not just two guys like making dick and fart jokes for two hours. Like we really look at the films, but it was just like, sure. It was the same thing for you. You know, like you have a pretty conversational vibe on here. Like so many of the film review programs that we would listen to are like NPR programs. It's like, okay, thank you very much for joining us. We're going to go ahead and look at, uh, the you know latest Paul Thomas Anderson movie, blah blah blah. It's like, dude, that's not how people talk. Like, no. and furthermore, if they do, that's not the person I want to talk to about this movie. Right, I talk to my buddy, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, over a beer or something like that. So, you know, we just it's like, okay, let's do, let's bring the same analysis, but let's actually infuse a sense of fun and comedy to it. So, um, yeah, that's what we are, Esoterica Cinema. Like I said on all the streaming platforms as well as the website. Check us out, and we really encourage uh, listener feedback. So. We have a lot of different social medias. You can email us. We also have like a listener mailbox where people can call in and leave messages and we'll play them on there. If you go to the website, all this stuff's on there. Excellent. Excellent. Esoterica Cinema. Check it out. Uh, And Jason, thank you so much for being on this week. This has been great. Uh, We'll have to do it again. We'll find another movie. Um, Maybe have you bring something that uh, that you love that I haven't seen and we'll we'll go that route or who knows. But you're welcome back anytime. Really appreciate that, man. And if so, I'll also try to get my ho- my co-host Ryan on here. Uh, yes, we'll, we'll do a little three-way. <laughs> Stay hey, bye, guys. Oh, <laughs> excellent. Uh, so, KG yeah, man, I really appreciate you having me on as well. It was, it was it was a really great time, and like I said, you know, being able to talk to actual like people that understand film, it's always just a beautiful thing. It's it's so great. I, I love the the discussion. This was a great discussion tonight, and. And it's going to continue because Cagerpalooza has only just begun. We've got four more episodes this year in our annual celebration of all things Nick Cage. Uh, next week is a mystery. Uh, so keep an eye on Twitter at TV's Travis and uh, you'll see what's going on there. The rest of the month, though, uh, I've got City of Angels lined up, um, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, and Pig. Uh, so we're going, uh, we're going in a little different direction this year. Um, getting some of the some of the newer stuff, and uh, I can't wait. I'm really looking forward to it. I enjoy this month every year. So, Cagepalooza 2022, uh, it's super super fun, and um, yeah, that's what's coming up. Uh, thank you again, Jason, for being on. This was great. Um, if you uh, enjoy the show and you want to watch it live Sunday nights, uh, 8 p.m. Eastern time, uh, Twitch.tv/tvstravis, you can hang out for the live stream. It's available as a podcast anywhere you get podcasts. Uh, or at tvstravis.com. Um, I gave it a name that's tough to search for. So Esoterica Cinema <laughs> feels feels very similar. Like it's a great name, but it's also you gotta you gotta explain it. And it's like I gave this weight you haven't seen. I put punctuation in there and ellipses. And it's like what was I thinking? I did not. It's not SEO. <laughs> is what it is. I'm terrible at SEO. Uh, but you can find it anywhere you get podcasts. Or like I said, tvstravis.com. Um, and come on back next week for week two of Cagepalooza and the special. Uh, mystery movie that uh, you'll find out about then. Until then, um, remember to enjoy your movies and uh, hey, let's be excellent to each other. There's been wait you haven't seen.
Love him, Loretta? Ma, I love him awful. Oh, God, that's too bad. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>